Good morning. Will you please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For while many were coming and going, they had no leisure to even eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When, they, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them to sit in groups of, on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and of the and those who ate the loaves of the loaves were five thousand men. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your, your great kindness that you have made yourself known to us. Lord, this morning we confess and we even see in our text that you are the good shepherd. The church has a senior pastor, a chief shepherd, and his name is Jesus. And Lord, in your glorious leading, shepherding kindness, you have equipped those from among the church to be your under-shepherds. And Lord, I pray for this process of eldership, for James, for Joyce, for their family, for the discernment of the elders, but also for the discernment of the church partners here at Cross Point Coast Pineda, that we would discern well in moving forward together. Lord, we are absolutely, moment by moment, not just in two weeks, but moment by moment and day by day, dependent upon you for the leadership of your church, that we would be provided for you by your grace and ongoing provision, by your spirit and your word at, midst, uh, at work in the midst of the church. We thank you for these things. We pray expectantly for these things and with rejoicing. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see, faith to believe this morning. Amen. This morning we are in chapter 6 together. We're in this passage in Mark chapter 6 verse 30 as we continue our series on the road with Jesus. And, and this time maybe we're not on the road, we're out boating with Jesus. And a bunch of other people are on a, a desert pathway and I want to begin this passage. Sometimes as a, in preparation for a sermon, a pastor runs across an idea 
And it's like, wow, that's a really interesting observation. And then we feel like, because we ran across the idea by reading a commentary or something, that now we need to figure out how to reword it and make it ours. But sometimes it's best to just admit it. I found it in a commentary is really good. I'm going to read it to you. I think you'll find it profitable. This is James Edwards from his commentary, The Pillar Commentary. And it's been an incredibly helpful commentary along the way. I'm going to read an extended quote for you. It goes like this. Mark follows the account of Herod's banquet with a banquet of a very different sort. Some of you who were here when we spent our time in Herod's banquet last week, a brutal ceremony taking place there. A, very, a banquet of a very different sort. At this banquet, Jesus presides. It's held not in a fortress or a palace, but in an open air and ro- rolling hills of Galilee. And the invitation is not restricted to important people. Unlike Herod's banquet, the primary purpose of which is to bolster his position with the crowds, Jesus' banquet is not provided to boost his standing with the crowds, but rather to minister to their needs, both perceived and otherwise. Jesus' compassion on the multitudes and the manner in which he satisfies their needs are a dramatic contrast to Herod's self-serving and deadly party. Jesus' banquet became even more renowned in the memory of the early church than Herod's banquet. It's the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. Two subsequent reflections in chapter 6, verse 52, and in chapter 8, and a final banquet in the Last Supper of which the feeding of the 5,000 is surely a foreshadowing. What a glorious reality that every single time we look at the world, we see a, a twisting of what God has given for our good. God came up with the idea of a big banquet. God came up with the idea of an abundant provision. God came up with the idea of a people celebrating together. And we twist it and pervert it by our own sin and self-righteousness, by our own striving. And the Lord comes in as he always does. And he comes in with an upside-down sort of kingdom world where there isn't a man who is demanded to be sacrificed for his own glory but where he gives himself as a sacrifice for others that they might be redeemed to a kingdom banquet. What a glorious reality we have in the scriptures. And Mark is so clearly painting this story for us. And it begins in a particular way, really with beautiful words, at the end of what we've been calling this Markon sandwich uh, that, that began many verses before with the disciples going out in ministry. And then we have this story about Herod and John the Baptist in the middle. And then it, that sort of section of Scripture ends in verse 30, which is the beginning of our passage today. Look at verse 30 with me. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. They're so excited, and they come back to Jesus. And that's a beautiful image to come back. Friends, that's what we're called to be. We are not first called to be ministers of the gospel. We are called first to come to Jesus. And as we go and minister the gospel, our longing is to come back to Jesus and celebrate the great fruit that his gospel has borne in the ministry that he has given to us. And Jesus, seeing his disciples coming back to him, seeing his apostles returning with all of their stories, he said to them in verse 31, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Come away with Jesus. We've already seen the disciples return to Jesus. 
And now he calls them to come away with him and rest. Now the passage tells us that they took a boat to a desolate place. So they're somewhere in that, in that region by the Sea of Galilee and they hop back on their boat and they're traveling along the shore. We see that Jesus do this often where he invites his disciples to go with him. And the desolate place in this passage means two things. The desolate place in this passage is, a, uh, it is to go to a place. And to go to a desolate place is also means to go from a place. Okay? It means to go to a place to meet with the Lord. All right? Jesus is inviting them to go with him on his spiritual retreat. What a, what a gracious story that disciples are brought into. This going to this place to meet with the Lord, to be refreshed in the presence of God by intentionally setting aside a space and a time that belongs to the Lord alone, to go to the place. It's not that there's some square footage on the planet that is, in which the Lord is more present. It's not the point. They're not going to where the Lord is because the Lord wasn't with them, but rather they go with the Lord to meet with the Lord. What it is, it is that there are times and places that we can set aside to be with him. Set aside moment to go to a place. This is why a desolate place is also to go from a place. Not only to but from. It is to physically step aside from the places in life that demand our attention. You know what I'm talking about. You know that there are certain rooms that you walk into, and if you walk into that room, there's something in that room that will demand your attention, right? Honestly, more and more these days, it's less of a room, and it's more of a thing that's demanding my attention because it says it's been eight minutes so far. I better keep moving. Do you see what I mean? We, we have places where we go, and it demands our attention. And to go to a desolate place isn't to just go to somewhere, but to say, you know what? There's somewhere I can't be right now. I need to leave behind something that would call for my attention, because in this moment, the desolate place is a place where the Lord would have my attention. It's not that he's not with me. It's that I'm divided. You see, I'm human. I can't know all things and think all things, and for me, a year is as a day, as a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. I live moment by moment, and I've got divided attention. And so I will go and be with the Lord. In a desolate place, there's no crowd, there's no work, and there's no entertainments. It's the removal of demands and distractions. Jesus is calling them to a desolate place as a removal from demands and distractions. I hope that those of you who are reading that book, Gentle and Lowly, some of you are already thinking of that as we're working our way through this text, that are reading that book, Gentle and Lonely, with us in community groups, hear the words of Jesus in the echo of Jesus' invitation to the disciples. Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest 
for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He is coming, he is calling them to put the yoke of attention to the Lord upon them in a desolate place. The desolate place will become increasingly an important uh, role in our passage, not only for understanding the context where this event takes place, but also for understanding the meaning of the event itself. Hold on to that. We'll see that the crowds, they ran to meet him in this desolate place. Look at verse 30 with me. Now, Many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Man, this is a passionate crowd of thousands that people can get in a boat, make their way along the shore, but people recognize them. And with no preparation, they've got to keep inside of the boat. They ran and beat Jesus to where he was taking his disciples to a desolate place. Jesus and his disciples went to find rest, right? It's not the disciples were running from ministry. It's that Jesus was calling them to go and rest with him. But the crowd followed. Oh boy. Anyone who has ever been in leadership responsibility, particularly in ministry, has at least a glimpse of an understanding of the meaning of this passage. Friends, there is a discernment and dependence that is needed in moments like these. You go to rest because you know that you have had a divided attention in the places where you've been recently. And you know that you need a special attention. That you need to meet the Lord in a desert place. And the phone rings. You're like, no, I muted that. And the door knocks right? News comes, and you're needed. There is a discernment and a dependence that's needed in a moment like that. At moments like these, we have to ask ourselves, why is it that I was going to the desolate place? Because, friends, there is a, some cultural phrases that work their way into what we might call Sabbath rhythms that are worldly words. Why did we go to the desolate place to begin with? Was it because I needed some me time? And you time is invading my me time? Friends, me time isn't a particularly biblical Sabbath rhythm. Is the business in our going off to be with the Lord to be with me? <laughs> no. Or was it because I wanted to go to be with the Lord in dependence upon him? Isn't that what we are going to? We are going to be with the Lord in a desolate place, off to the side from the attentions that had previously grabbed us, to be with him in dependence upon him. There are times when we are pressed at every side and we seek a place of genuine rest. And the providence of the Lord is that he would teach us provision and grace through dependence when the crowd invades again. Oh, he's good. He's going to teach you exactly what you were going off in a, to a desolate place to learn. Dependence upon him. Because you can't do this anymore. And the Lord will work. And you'll say, <laughs> it's true. It's still true. The Lord is the one who works. I can rest in him at all times. 
What does the sovereign design of God do for the disciples in this passage? Remember, it was Jesus that identified that they needed to go to a desolate place. What is the sovereign design of God in this? He shows them that his grace is sufficient for the day to provide for their every need, even when such provision comes both outside of our plan for rest and beyond our ability to provide for ourselves. God is going to teach the disciples about dependence in this passage. Also note that Jesus really ended up bringing more than 12 into his rest. Do you see it? He asked his disciples to come and rest with him. And they did. <laughs> it's just more of the disciples got word than perhaps Jesus was speaking to on that particular day. He ended up bringing over 5,000 souls to rest and experience his provision. Now tell me that the disciples were not rejuvenated by God's sovereign provision. Right in the midst of an interrupted retreat, he refreshes them. The Lord gifted the disciples with a glimpse at his powerful provision to sustain them in body and soul in an interrupted Sabbath retreat. The setting of this episode is the increase of Jesus' notoriety among the people. You remember, the disciples have gone out. They've had a successful mission. And King Herod hears about it as the notoriety increases. He's like, oh my goodness, John the Baptist is raised from the dead. Of course, John the Baptist wound up getting killed when he became notorious in the region. So we have this image of Jesus' notoriety and his threat to those who are in power. This is a re region that is notorious for its revolutionary fervor. The people who are running to Jesus aren't just a hungry people, hungry for the teachings of Jesus. Teach us more. We love listening to you. Or even we love your miracles. They are hungry for the coming of a Savior. But the Savior that they had envisioned was a worldly rescuer. And they thought they'd found their new king. They thought that they were going out to follow a great and powerful leader, the sort of leader that could lead at least 5,000, if not a whole nation. Listen to the account of John. John chapter 6, verse 15, it says this, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. That's the circumstance that this story is. This isn't just a, a humble crowd listening to the teaching of Jesus. This is a mighty force looking for a king. At the end of the passage, it says that those who ate were 5,000 men. The word that is used is not a generic term for people in this case. It explicitly indicates mature, grown men. Surely there were some women and children in the midst of the crowd, but I think that we are told explicitly the count in terms of men because we have a specifically a group of men from the surrounding region who are looking for a leader to lead them in a liberation of the dominance of the, pow of the foreign powers in their midst. This was an army, and they were looking for a leader. And what did Jesus do? When he looks at that group who are looking for a leader, he sees it. He sees it right away. He had compassion on them. 
He, he truly sees them. When he went ashore, in verse 34, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. One of the most compelling things to me as I look at Jesus through the years in the Gospels is Jesus has some of the best eyes that have ever been. He sees people. He sees what's actually right there in front of him. He truly sees people. Jesus used the word shepherd. Now what's interesting is the word shepherd is not actually to conjure in our minds a sweet pastoral hillside where Jesus distributes some fast food. All right, this isn't a sweet pastoral hillside. The metaphor evokes a sense of a need for a strong leader to lead this massive flock. The people needed someone like uh, this, this word, this word shepherd is used to refer to Moses and the multitude who followed after him. Joshua in his invasion of the land of Canaan. The people needed someone to lead them. And Jesus looks at them and he doesn't disagree. They need a shepherd. And he has compassion on them. So what did he do? What does a great and mighty leader, the all-powerful Jesus, do to lead the people? He began to teach them many things. How is the Lord going to lead a mighty cohort of men? Is he going to lay out a grand strategy of resistance? He begins to teach them. This has been Jesus' purpose for the entire time in Mark, particularly in moments where something else is what should have happened next, if it would have been you, or if it would have been me, or one of the other great leaders from the past. Jesus begins to teach them. You see, he's not a military commander. He is the preacher of good news. But over time, especially following his death and resurrection, Finally, those who follow him will realize that he was leading them in the only resistance that will finally succeed over the powers of the world. He was the mighty shepherd, and he was leading them to conquer. That resistance is the grace of dependence upon the Lord for his rescue from sin and death. What Jesus will teach us is that the enemy is not Herod. The enemy is not Rome or any other worldly power. The rescue will not come in the form of a military rebellion. Genuine rescue. Final redemption is found when we lay down our own rebellion against God. Genuine rescue will not come in the form of a rebellion, but the laying down of our rebellion. Rescue will come when we, not when we take up arms and fight, but when we lay down rebellion in faith. He will lead the people. But his victory is far different than the victory envisioned by the people. He's going to lead them. And so he teaches them. There's something about verse 34, something powerfully moving. It's an invitation to join the Lord in looking at the crowd. Consider them, see them genuinely. Look even perhaps at our own community and see their frantic efforts to rescue themselves. 
Think of the many redemptions, all the schemes of rescue present in our own community. Do you see the crowds? Now, there aren't crowds running around the countryside looking for a new king today. Though in recent years, there is a rising sense in the culture that the hope of the people will come in some sort of political rescue. There are people running around, frantic, looking for someone to lead them. Perhaps we aren't too far detached from the political dis desperation of a people in a desolate place. But there are many ways, if we have eyes to see, that the people in our neighborhoods through our own county right now are seeking both rescue and rest in a variety of ways. We're building little kingdoms for ourselves in our homes, little oases in the wilderness. But we're building little empires out of our careers, places to establish ourselves. We're seeking a sort of... Uh, morality that's found in the pursuit of health and beauty. We're seeking a utopia through political figures or, or legislation. We think that somehow we can save ourselves if just one of ourselves would step up and lead us. Verse 34 is fundamental, honestly, to my own call as a church planter. I don't just see people outside the church wandering around in vain hopes of rescue. One of the, the tragedies that has increasingly broken my heart, and I know it's also broken many of yours, is what is often called the de-churched. That is those who perhaps have some exposure to the church or some sort of familiarity with the gospel but are either walking not in fellowship with Christ and his people or they're floundering in their own faith. What is needed? A new, great, strategic, and relevant church? Or do is what we need is the same thing that was needed on this day for someone to sit and teach them. Now, I don't have anything. I've known for a long time, I, I ain't got nothing. But we have the word. We have the word who taught. And so we can open it up and we can say, please leave your Bibles open because we have the word. And we can open it up and we can pay attention so that many might hear and receive and follow after the leader in faith. Listen, Jesus alone is the good shepherd. He alone. He is the mighty, glorious, sovereign, redeeming leader of the people. And he is so according to his own grace. But in his gracious provision, he has given us shepherds, fellow disciples, whom he has called to feed the sheep. And the great news is he hasn't just given a recipe. He's given the food itself. And this is the call to eldership at Cross Point Coast. And it's really the call to all disciples to make disciples, that we have the food, feed the sheep. My prayer is that we would see the crowds in Brevard County and desire to bring them to be instructed by the word of the Lord, and they will find a mighty rescue.
What we see in the remainder of the passage is how right and good it is to sit at the feet of the master. It works. It's good. It is an incredible strategy to sit at the feet of the master. He will provide for a people who sit in dependence upon him. What does he do? Verse 35 and 36, he gives them something to eat. It grew late. His disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages, buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. Well, that was unexpected, right? <laughs> they said to him, shall we go and buy two denarii two denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat. And he said, how many loaves? Then he began to provide. It's late. Send them away, the disciples say. Now, before we get too down on the disciples, let's be honest. For one of the first times that we've seen them, they saw something other than themselves. They looked around and they saw a crowd and they said, huh, they're hungry. Well, I'm glad. They also saw the people and they saw what they recognized as their need. They're hungry. They've watched Jesus and even experienced themselves. And now ministry has left them exhausted, even to the point that they, the passage said, they didn't even have leisure to eat. And now he's looking at these people in a deserted place, and they're saying they also don't have leisure to eat. They're learning from Jesus. That's just not sustainable for this crowd. Perhaps the disciples didn't want the crowd getting hangry. This is 5,000 angry, perhaps even militant men. Get these guys some food, they're saying. This could become a revolution just because they're hungry. Seriously. This is a large throng. And they have a newly adopted leader. You want to keep a group like that well fed. So verse 37, when Jesus says, give them something to eat, Jesus is always teaching his disciples. He's always teaching them. He's inviting them to trust him again. Jesus presents them with an impossible problem, even an impossible command. And then he solves the problem as they walk in faith in him. This is what Jesus does. There's not a command that God has not given to us that is impossible for sinners like you and me to fulfill. But then... As he commands us, he also provides the means, the grace, the transformation, the courage, and the strength to walk according to his command. It is no more possible that you and I would keep any one of the commands of Jesus than it is that the disciples would feed all these people on that day. Jesus presents them with an impossible problem, and then he presents to them dependence of faith. Friends, this is very much of the ministry that you and I experience. God presents his people with a problem, and then he calls us to participate with him in the revelation of how he would work in our midst. Presently, we feel this very strongly at Cross Point Coast. Really, we always have, but there are some moments where you can see it a little more clearly. How do we plant the gospel in multiple congregations throughout a county? We don't have a solution for that. But we believe that this is what the Lord has called us to and will walk in dependence upon him. How do you provide for the financial needs of a church, particularly in the last year and a half that we have had? How do we leverage a facility like this that the Lord has given to us? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But here we are. Do we have faith in him? Will we follow after him? 
The Lord has clearly told us to give Brevard County something to eat. And he's given us compassion for the crowds. I don't know many, uh, if many of you know this, but today's September 26th. Hopefully you might know that. Three days ago was September 23rd, but what you may not know is that it was the nine-year anniversary of our first celebration service at Holiday Inn in Vieira. And I'll tell you right now, just a couple people who were in this room were there. And I'll tell you, that group had been called to do something in this county that was as impossible as feed all the county. And the Lord has gone before us at every single moment with his provision And he has had compassion, not only upon us, but he has given us the joy of watching him have compassion upon Brevard County. This is so often the way that Jesus grows our faith. He puts us in a predicament in which the only next step that is available to us is to depend upon him. Functional dependence upon the Lord And then as we walk in his way, he shows himself powerful, good, and trustworthy. And friends, that is a retreat for the soul. These disciples got something way better than a weekend away. They got the retreat of seeing the Lord work in their midst. And he works in their midst with a meal. Verse 39 says that he sat them down, commanded them to sit down in groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. I just can't go get over how the details of this passage is actually telling a story that you would miss if you just looked at bread and some fish. The details in this passage, like this one, listen to Exodus 18, 25. Tell me that this is not something going on here. Moses chose able men of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and tens. The details, a desolate place, maybe something like a desert. The people seeking a leader in the wilderness. Twelve disciples coming to represent the twelve tribes of Israel, coming out to their Redeemer in the wilderness. The Lord meeting them there with the provision of bread or manna in the wilderness, and now the organization of the people like Jethro had instructed Moses. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the greater Moses. He is the Father's mediator bringing about a miracle that is to point to a rescue, a redemption that can be found in the Lord alone. You see, the people sought one thing. They sought simple ease out of Egypt. But what the Lord knew is they need rescued from their sin, and they could only see it if they could see it in the commandments. And now these people, they think that they know how they need to be rescued. And the Lord is giving them something. He's saying, follow after me, and you will see provision of rescue. He does it. In this way, and the disciples will remember it, and it will be recorded for us. Verse 41, and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. See, the Lord provides bread in a desolate place, and this ought to cause us to think of many things. This ought to cause us to think of manna in the wilderness. 
When the Lord calls the people to himself, the Lord provides for the people. And this ought to cause us to think of the Lord's Supper. Listen to Mark chapter 14. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Friends, when we see this, we ought to think ahead. And we ought to, and John helps us to in his record of this passage, think with John chapter 6 that Jesus is the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is teaching us something in this miracle that has far more profound of an impact upon all of history than a few angry people in a desolate place. At every step, the Lord is calling us out of, of, into dependence upon the Lord, seeking not a worldly rescue, but dependence upon himself, who he is, and the gospel that he performs. We see this in the manna, in the wilderness, in the multiplication of the bread in Mark chapter 6. But friends, there's no greater provision that we have than the giving of his own body on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. He took our burden, our sin, our punishment upon himself, and he died our death. That is the breaking of his body. He died our death is what this passage tells us so that we might be raised with him in the resurrection because he provides for life. You see, Jesus' provision of salvation is not only provision for a day. You know, it's interesting. The passage says this in verse 42, such a simple short verse, and they all ate and were satisfied. How long did that last? They had some bread and some fish. They ate and were satisfied. We know by watching the gospel's account, they weren't satisfied for long. In fact, almost everyone deserted him. They weren't satisfied because what they found was some bread and it got them all excited. And when he began to talk about how the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, die, and rise, they began to go back to their towns and think, maybe somebody else can come. He's clearly not a John the Baptist. No, his provision, his salvation is not for a day. His provision is to be brought into an eternal and constant provision, a perfect rest, and all who eat of him. And friends, the only way to eat of Christ, to partake of his grace, is by faith to confess that our need is not need for worldly rescue or a weekend away. That our need is a spiritual need of our rebellion against our God. That what we need is for our sin to be functionally forgiven through his sacrifice on the cross. Faith 
in Jesus Christ. And friends, which day does that go away? Which Sunday morning do we gather where we do not confess, God, the only way that I can be satisfied today is if you, Lord, have forgiven my sin by your perfect work on the cross. If on that day it was finished, I need that reality September 26th today. That today is the day for faith for every single person here. And if you have not believed in this testimony, today is the day for faith for you. I call upon everyone, and particularly those who have not yet believed, to lie down your rebellion and trust in the salvation of our Savior and know his provision, not just for today, not just for justification for today, but for glory, grace, and provision forever. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Heavenly Father, what a glorious hope we have in the provider. Not even the disciples knew to go away, let alone what to ask for when they got there. Lord, that you have provided before we knew our need. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is our state. This is our reality. This is our story. And it is not good news on its own. But because you knew us, you saw us, just like you saw this crowd, you made your teaching, your gospel, known to us through some means, probably through someone else. And we heard your word and we have believed. So Lord, we rejoice today. We rejoice. We, we, we would celebrate, even as we celebrate communion, we would celebrate and remember the perfect and glorious, sufficient, ongoing provision that is in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ for our satisfaction, that we would be truly, fully satisfied in him. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for your work in every single one in this room, particularly for the one who has resisted, who has not believed. I pray that this morning they would lay down rebellion, cease hope in this world and in themselves, confess sin, and cry out to you for forgiveness and grace. Lord, we trust in you for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.